Acts chapter 9. If you're new to the Bible, you can find the book of Acts in the table of contents. Just find a page number and uh, turn to the book of Acts and go to the ninth chapter. We're going to be looking at uh, verse 19 through verse 31 today. Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through verse 31. you'll follow along in your Bible as I read. This is what it says. For some days he, meaning Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who has made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through the opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly, and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. I want to talk to you on a theme that I pick up right there in verse 31, which summarizes the church in the midst of this season. And so I want to call my sermon, Peace in Persecution. Peace in Persecution. Let's Go to God and ask Him for His help as we get into the text this morning. Father, we come before You and we thank You for the opportunity that we have to be Your people, to gather as the representatives of Jesus Christ in this place. I pray that You would help me as I preach this morning that I would communicate Your truth. I pray that You would open our hearts and our ears to Your truth, that You would mold us and shape us, fashion us. Make us look more like Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen. In 1555, a man named Nicholas Ridley was sentenced to be burned by fire to death. Burned on the stake. His sentencing came as a result of his proclamation of the gospel, his witness for Jesus, and his support of a young lady named Lady Jane Grey, who also had been 
killed. She was beheaded, uh, and she was a Christian. The night before Ridley was to be burned, he found himself in a cell. Let me just start with this question. How do you sleep the night before you are to be burned to death? I want to talk to you about peace in persecution. In chapter 8, going back in Acts here, just a little summary for you. In chapter 8, we saw Philip's missionary activity, which included uh, the proclamation of the gospel to Simon the magician, and then the Ethiopian eunuch, who we saw uh, in his amazing conversion story. Then we got into Acts chapter 9, and the first 19 verses, we saw Saul's own conversion story. The next major event is going to happen in Acts chapter 10 with a man named Cornelius, as Luke, the writer of Acts, turns our attention from uh, Jerusalem to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, the Gentile mission, beginning with this man named Cornelius. These verses in between Saul's conversion and Cornelius then are what uh, scholars call transitional material. In verses 19 through 31, we see Paul's uh, or Saul at the time, Saul's post-conversion life. In verses 32 through 43, we see some of Peter's ministry. But this is more than just simply transitional material. What Luke is doing for us is he's grabbing two threads, two major threads, and he's pulling them together and he's tying them together. What are these two threads? The first one is this. How did the biggest enemy of the church become the biggest missionary for the church? Taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And then secondly, how and when did that Gentile mission begin? So what we're going to see then as Luke threads these two themes together is Saul's post-conversion life. We're going to study that today. And then next week, Peter's ministry. As Peter ramps up for this meeting with Cornelius. So let's look at Saul's life. This man, Saul. Enemy number one, as we talked about last week. And then Jesus showed up. If you read the earlier verses here in chapter 9, what you discover is that no matter how much you hate God, when God decides to call you, He will wake you up. His grace is irresistible. His call is effectual. His election is unconditional. And that's what we see in Saul's life as God turns his enemy into his Friend, anything is possible, church. In verse 19, it says, for some days. Everybody say, some days. We don't know exactly how long Luke is talking about there. Luke kind of moves quickly because Luke is getting at different themes. But it says, for some days, in verse 19, he was with his disciples. The timeline is a little hard to figure out. But according to Galatians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18... 
Paul said that he did not go straight to Jerusalem after his conversion, but he first went to Arabia and then back to Damascus, and there was about a three-year period of what we understand to be training from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Can you get better seminary education than that? Just like all the other apostles, Saul was trained for three years. This wasn't some hack job who didn't know anything, who had no training. Jesus himself said, we're going to sit down and have class for three years. And that took place somehow, somewhere, in between Damascus and Arabia, and then back to Damascus. So some days right there in verse 13, uh, 19 probably covers a three-year period. He was here in Damascus. Now what did he do in Damascus. Again, we don't know the timing of all of this, but we know that at some point in that three-year period, verse 20, he began preaching in Damascus that Jesus is the Son of God. Now that's important because as Jesus revealed himself to Saul in Acts 9, he revealed himself as the Son of God. Saul takes what Jesus revealed about himself and he preaches that to uh, the people in Damascus. Now the Christians, as you can imagine in verses 20 and 21, are blown away. Did Saul really change? Yeah. Is this seriously the dude that was trying to lock us up? And they actually believe, look at verse 21, that this might be one of his dirty schemes. They say in verse 21, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon, his, uh, upon this name, the name that he's preaching? Ah, and has he not come here for this purpose? to bring them bound before the chief priests. Maybe this is Saul's dirty scheme to preach Jesus and to find out who's going to cling to Jesus and then he's going to turn on them, bind them in chains, and take them back to Jerusalem. Now in spite of this, Saul's fruit testifies to his genuineness. In verse 22, we're told that he confused the Jews by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now, this is not Saul's doing, but rather this is God's power in Saul's life. As Saul uses his own uh, weak and, 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 and uh, worthless words and turns them into something powerful and strong and worthy. We're told in verse 22 that Saul was strengthened. This is not about Saul's brilliance, but it's about God's power. Yeah. Now, isn't this all wonderful? The, the, the biggest enemy of the church becomes the church's biggest ally, the biggest defender. Isn't this all wonderful? If this was a, uh, a children's book, it would probably be, be called Big Bad Saul. Big Bad Saul, who wants to devour or eat the Christians. And as he's on his way, Jesus appears, changes Saul, he then joins the church and they all live happily ever after. Amen? However, this is the Bible. And the Bible is the realest book you're ever going to come across. 
in the Bible, there is no happily ever after. Well, let me take that back. There actually is a happily ever after. In Revelation chapter 21 and 20, uh, uh, 22, uh, or 20 and 21, uh, and, no, 21 and 22, let me get my revelation straight here. Uh, we are told that one day Jesus will return and there will be a happily ever after. Like true joy, true happiness, forever and ever. However, the Bible never promises that there will be a happily ever after in this world until that time. And so Paul himself says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he says the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us in that happily ever after. So we suffer and we endure during this time knowing that it's going to be worth it. Yes, there is a happily ever after that awaits us. But listen, it's not on earth. And this is very important because sometimes I think Christians are surprised by trials and tribulations. Sometimes I think we are taken off guard by it. Sometimes I think Christians become a new believer. They come to Jesus and then a trial, a tribulation, rejection, problems come and they're surprised by it. They don't know what to do. They didn't expect it. Our dude, uh, Kevin, told me recently that he, he once worked for an internet company. And he got a call from an unhappy customer because uh, they had hooked up the wireless internet and, and the customer said there's a problem that his, his computer screen is black. And so Kevin asked him, he says, did you plug your computer into the charger cord? And the guy said, no, I, I don't need to do that. Uh, I ordered wireless internet. And so Kevin had to explain to him that the product you ordered, yes, it is indeed wireless internet, but our product uh, doesn't promise a wireless computer. Look, sometimes people buy a product and expect that product to deliver on a promise that that product was never meant to deliver. And sometimes people come to Christianity as a product hoping that it will deliver something they're hoping it will deliver something that it never promised to deliver. Are you tracking with me? Two problems with that. Problem number one, Christianity is not a product. It is not something that we buy for our personal gain in this world. Yes, there is personal gain in Christianity. More gain than you can ever imagine from anything else that's out there. But it's not a product to be consumed. And secondly, Christianity never promised peace in this world. It never promises that you will not have problems in this life. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. It comes to test you. Don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. This is no fairy tale. Paul, <clears throat> also called here Saul, 
same person. He gets saved, but it's no fairy tale. Your life is not going to be a fairy tale. Don't expect that Jesus is just going to come and rid you of all of your problems. Rid you of all of your persecution. Rid you of all, your, all of your rejection. For some, they might experience more problems, rejection, and certainly persecution as a Christian than they ever experienced prior to coming to faith. That is certainly Paul's story. In this very much so real book of the Bible, we are told who our true enemy is. Our greatest enemy is this spirit, which the Bible calls Satan, also called the devil. We first see him as a serpent in the Garden of Eden. Saul is converted. Amen? The greatest enemy, human enemy, has been reversed into a friend. Has been changed. Does that mean the enemy has stopped? No. He just simply picks up where Saul left off. So while Saul was being used as the primary tool to try to squash the work of God, once Saul is saved... Now there are just simply others that come along to try to squash the work of God. Because the enemy is still at work. The devil is still on the prowl. You see, God even said to Saul, you're going to suffer for my name's sake. That was part of his conversion. Don't think that just because Saul got saved that all of a sudden there is no more suffering. There is no more persecution. No, the real enemy is still at work. And here's what I want to say, church. The same spiritual forces that were at work through Saul and then against Saul and the church, the same spiritual forces at work 2,000 years ago are still at work today. The same spiritual forces have not changed. They are trying to stomp out Christianity. In your life, the methods have changed, their approach has changed, but the battle is still the same. The enemy will try to do everything the enemy can do to destroy your faith. In a world that is growing more and more hostile to Christianity, the enemy will try to use that to discourage your faith. saying that, that Christianity is merely a tool of oppression or the white man's religion or anything that would discredit the true gospel of Jesus Christ from any people group called to faith. The enemy will do whatever he can to destroy your faith. Confusion over gender, confusion over sexuality that certainly goes right up against what the Bible teaches. How do we reconcile these things? And some people say, well, I give up Christianity and embrace what's popular in culture. Yeah. The enemy will do whatever the enemy can to destroy your faith. Are you with me? Yeah. What I'm trying to say is this. There, there is no happily ever after. If you're a new Christian here, or if you've been a Christian for many years, 
and you're wondering, why is my life so hard? Why do I feel so conflicted in this world? Why is it so hard to have faith? Why is it so hard to cling to this truth? Why does it feel that now I'm a Christian, I'm going against the grain all the time? I want you to look at the life of Saul. And I want you to see his life. And I want you to know that it is normal. Look at Saul's life. Here comes the persecution in the text. First, it's, the, it's called the, the, the Jews, quote-unquote, the Jews in Damascus. We pick up in, in verse 23, the, the Jews in Damascus plotted to kill him. So the same force that once filled and empowered and equipped Saul is now against Saul. You can only imagine their hatred of him. What a sellout Saul is. He was the one who came along with this grand scheme on how to lock up the Christians and how to squash this thing. And would you believe it? He became one. You can only imagine their hatred of him. These old cities were surrounded by a wall and there were you know, certain gates. Uh, you could only get out of the city through the gates. And so what they did was, uh, as they're plotting for him, evidently Saul is probably hiding in the city somewhere, so they just hang out at the gates. They got spies at every single gate, just waiting for Saul at, one, at some point to leave the city so that they can kill him. Well, if this was a movie, Will Smith would definitely play Saul. The state has turned on him. Now listen, like Will Smith, Saul is running for his life. Look at verse 25. It says his disciples took him by night, let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. They snuck him out of the city. Now I don't know if this point needs to be made, but I'm going to make it anyway. It is okay to run away from persecution. It is okay to try to preserve your life. Like sometimes I think Christians, well-meaning, can just sort of be like, man, I'm in persecution, this is my lot in life, you know, I'm not going to leave this situation, I'm not going to leave this person, I'm not going to walk, walk away from this because, you know, I'm just supposed to bear it. Well, wait a second, Saul was actually running for his life. Like we don't try to suffer as Christians. We don't try to get hurt as Christians. If we can pursue peace, by all means, Saul himself says, pursue it. Try to be at peace with everybody because it's really bad when you're not. Saul is running for his life. Now eventually, listen, eventually, he will, get, uh, uh, he, he will find himself in a situation that he cannot run from. And he will still boldly preach, preach Christ. He will never run for his life in any way that would, that would keep him from the mission to which God has called him. Yeah. Are you with me? But here what we see is that Saul is slipping out of Damascus. It's been three years since this man first left Jerusalem on hunt for the Christians. And now for the first time in three years, Saul heads back to Jerusalem. When he gets back in verse 26, what we see is he tries to join the church, but he gets a stiff arm 
from the church. It says in verse 26, he attempted to join the disciples. Look at this. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Check this out. Not only is Saul running for his life, not only is Saul rejected by the Jews in Damascus, not only are Saul's old friends stiff-arming him, not only is Saul a refugee in Jerusalem, but when Saul gets to Jerusalem and tries to join the church, he's denied church membership because they don't believe him. Number one, Christians may misjudge you, love them anyway. I am so glad that Saul did not give up on the church when he was misjudged by the, ch- by the church. I, I, I believe that if Saul was a modern American therapeutic, my feelings are hurt, you don't know me, kind of Christian, he would have bounced like this. He would have said, I don't need those jokers anyway. They don't believe me. Forget them. Look, if anybody in all of Christian history can say, I don't need the church, I think it would have been Paul the Apostle. But when Saul got to Jerusalem, what did he do? Step number one, join a local church. I ain't out here on my own. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. I need the body of Christ. I need to be in them. Join the local church. Step number two, misjudged, rejected by the local church. Step number three, try again. Keep pursuing them. Keep loving them. Don't give up. Too many people have this mindset, my ministry is outside of the church. I don't need the church. The church is too much to handle. I've heard people even tell me, the church slows me down. I just have this question, why didn't Paul think like that? I think it's because the church is essential to the Christian life. Saul doesn't try to do anything in Jerusalem without first being affirmed by the local church and brought into fellowship. Prioritize the local church. Barnabas then steps up. He advocates for Paul. And he, he says, hey, let me tell you about his conversion experience. Let me tell you about uh, his, his testimony. This is in some ways what an, uh, uh, the elders might do at a members meeting when they advocate for a new believer and say, this is what we know about this person. And they try to persuade the members to understand and to see that there is Christian fruit in Saul's life. Now, by verse 28, what we see is that things have quickly changed. And it says that he went in and out among them which means that they received Saul into their membership, into their fellowship, and he is one of them. He's going in and out. He is part of the local church. Second point I want to make on this, God changes people. Don't hold their past against them. Second point of application, God changes people. Like two thumbs up for the church in Jerusalem. Yes, they misjudged him at first. They didn't believe him at first. He wasn't hurt. He wasn't feeling a certain way. He just allowed for Barnabas to speak up for him. They brought him into membership. What they discovered is this, is that God actually changes people. And we're not going to hold our past, uh, Saul's past against him. 
You see, society judges you based on your past. You get the good job because you have a good resume, which is a track record of your past. You've got credibility on on the streets because of your background on the streets, your past. You can buy a home because of a good credit score. Anybody? Society defines who you are based on your past. Let's think of Saul's entrance exam into the church. Have you ever overseen the murder of a Christian? Yes. Have you ever tried to uh, pursue Christians and lock them up? Yes. Have you ever hated Jesus Christ? Yes. Have you ever gone hunting Christians like dogs in multiple cities? Yes. Have you ever met Jesus, been regenerated, filled with the Holy Spirit, and changed into a new creature? Yes. Welcome to church. That's pretty much what it looks like. Because your past doesn't define you, Jesus defines you. Saul is brought into the local church not because of what he's done, but because of what Jesus has done for him. Have you ever put your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you know the change that Jesus Christ offers your life? Trust in Him now. Stop trying to prove yourself. Stop trying to prove yourself to God. Stop trying to prove yourself to everybody else. But listen, be approved by God. Be approved by Him. Let Jesus speak for you. Let Jesus say, He is mine. She is mine. Now, Saul's problems are still not over. Like I said, Christianity is not a product that has promised Uh, no problems in this world. They tried to kill him in Damascus. Same enemy still at work in Damascus as it is in Jerusalem. They tried to kill him in Jerusalem. Saul wrestles not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. His biggest enemy is not the Romans. His biggest enemy is not the Jews in Damascus. His biggest enemy is not the Hellenists in Jerusalem, but his biggest enemy is Satan himself. However, in the face of this enemy, I want you to see Saul's continued boldness. Look at verse 28. He goes in and out them, the church among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly. Look at this, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't shut down. He's not afraid. Yes, he might die but he will not stop his mission that God has put him on. Verse 29, And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but now they're trying to kill him. When they were seeking to kill him, the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, and they sent him off to Tarsus. Escape number two. Saul is on the run. He's been saved. Doesn't mean things are easier. For Saul, things have got harder. In 1555, like I said, Nicholas Ridley was sentenced to be burned to death. 
And in that cell the night before, he went to the stake to have his hands tied up and to have the, the fire put around his feet, which would slowly eat away at his flesh until he breathed his last. In that cell the night before he was to die, his brother came in. And his brother offered to spend the night with him in jail, to stay up with him all night long and to, to try to comfort him on this final night. I need to read to you Ridley's response to his brother. He basically said, thanks, but no thanks. He says, I intend, God willing, to go to bed and sleep as quietly tonight as I ever did. What's he saying by that? He's saying, I'm at peace. I am at peace. Ridley knew that no matter the storm out there, no matter the persecution out there, there is peace in here. He knew that there is a peace that passes all understanding. What's striking to me about this text is we see Saul on the run out of Damascus. Saul rejected initially by the Christians in Jerusalem. Saul on the run out of Jerusalem. We see all of this persecution all of this problems, all of this turmoil, what's striking to me is verse 31. As Luke sums up the church at this time, look at verse 31, he says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had, what is that word? They had peace and was being built up. The church had peace. Question. It's one simple question that comes to mind. How does the church have peace in the storm of persecution? How is it possible for your future to be unsure, yet you continue to grow? How is it possible to be rejected by your old friends, yet you live with joy? How is it possible to face the real uh, likelihood of your own death and to sleep well the night before. How is it possible? Well, the text actually tells us. Let me give you two ways that I see it's possible for the church to have all of this storm of persecution but to be at peace. Number one, how? Number one, walk in the fear of the Lord. Walk in the fear of the Lord. How do they do it? Verse 31, it says that they are walking in the fear of the Lord. Listen, you are controlled by that which you fear. You are controlled by that which you fear. Meaning, if you fear rejection, you're controlled by that fear. Some of you might fear criticism. Some of, my, some of you might fear embarrassment. Some of you might fear denial. Some of you might fear loss. They are not walking in the fear of all of these things. But they are walking in the fear of the Lord. We could turn it around and put it the other way. They are not walking in the fear of man. I remember years ago, see, I, I, personally, I'm like a, a natural-born people-pleaser, you know? 
I want people to approve of me. And years ago, I remember a specific situation. I won't give you the details, but I uh, had a conversation with somebody and I tried to lovingly confront them on some things and I really believed uh, that I was biblical and in the right. I wasn't sure how they took it. And that kept me up at night. It was bothering me. It was driving me. I couldn't rest. I couldn't think straight. Every time I thought about the individual, I wondered what they were thinking of me. Whoa. What is the Lord thinking of me right now? (laughs) And finally, I got in touch with the individual. And they were completely fine with what I said. They were actually happy about it. And you know what? All of a sudden, I had peace. Now, is that a good thing? No. That's a bad thing. You know why? Because I needed their approval for me to have peace. I was actually a slave to them. I was a slave to what they thought of me. I was a slave to the fear of denial, the fear of rejection. The fear of disapproval. You are a slave to these things. These things, listen, fear of man is a snare. If you are afraid, if if you prioritize what people think of you, it is a trap of the devil and you will find yourself constantly in the dungeon of despair. Constantly. You will always be having to find that approval. And yes, you will feel good for a little bit. Just wait until there's another question mark over somebody's head. It's slavery. Proverbs tells it this way. Proverbs 29-25 says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord, listen to this, is kept safe. How? Does the church in persecution find a sense of safety? It's because they have not fallen into the snare of fear of man. And we're told in verse 31, they are, fear, they are walking in the fear of God. Do you know that there is a safe place for you even when persecution and rejection comes? When you are rejected, by your employer for your Christian views. When you're rejected by a political party because all of your views don't line up with them. When you're rejected by a boyfriend or a girlfriend because you refuse to commit sexual sin. When you're rejected by a close friend group because of a particular stance you took based on your biblical convictions. Do you know that there is a safe place for you? Do you know that there is peace that you can have? Jesus himself put it this way. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who has, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even 
The hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than even the sparrows. Luke chapter 12. Peter, who will one day face his own execution hanging upside down on a tree, put it this way. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Listen to this line. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Fearing God means that God's view of you is superior than everybody else's view of you. That is a safe place to be for the Christian. So they're walking then in the fear of God. Number one, do you fear God? Do you fear men? How do you find peace in persecution? Fear God. Number two, how do you find peace in persecution? They're walking in the fear of the Lord, it says, verse 31, and they're also walking in something else. Look, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They're walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I think sometimes we think and this is our problem, we think of the comfort of the Holy Spirit to work more like a thermometer. As soon as life gets cold, it just automatically should kick on for us. And then you're wondering why your thermometer's broken. You're wondering why uh, in your life as you have challenges and problems and persecution, you're wondering why the, thermo- why, why the furnace doesn't just kick on. You're wondering why it doesn't ju- the Holy Spirit doesn't just automatically begin to comfort you. Well, the church in the first century wasn't just it wasn't automatic for them. It says that they were walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, meaning some, that's something they were doing. They were moving in this direction. They were intentionally moving in this direction. Well, what does that mean then? Number one, I think we need to examine our own fear of man. We need to examine, why is it that I'm afraid? You want to name, name and claim something? Name and claim that. Why am I afraid? Who am I afraid of? Is it me? Is it someone else? What are my fears? Now compare that to the cross of Jesus Christ. Lay those fears down at the cross. Confess them clearly to God. And then cling to your Helper. Walk with your helper. Have faith. Trust that there is indeed a friend that you cannot see. If everybody else rejects you, there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Church, do you know this kind of comfort? God has not promised an easy road, but He has promised a friend to cling to on the road. Imagine it's dark and you're walking down a rocky path and you can't see the way and you keep stumbling. And a friend comes along and says, I know the way. Oh, you're going to cling to your friend. J.I. Packer wonders, why does God allow so many problems and so many challenges in the believer's life? And he reasons this way. He says, if we are on an easy road and someone grabs our arm, we will shake them off. But, he says, if the road is rocky and everything is dark, 
if someone grabs us to help us through, we will cling to them. Walking in the comfort of your friend. Walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. Do you know this comfort? Someone once said that safety consists not in the absence of danger, but in the presence of God. Don't you see, church, the first church multiplied and grew, not because there was peace all around them on the outside, but because there was peace on the inside. Walking in the fear of God in combination with walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit equaled the church being built up. We don't need society to give us peace in order for us to grow and thrive. The church over 2,000 years has been known to grow and thrive even when persecution is at its finest. I wonder if there is some challenge in your life. I wonder if you need this peace of God. I wonder if you need to stop fearing man and start fearing God. I wonder if you need to stop walking in the comfort of everything working out for you and start walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit who will walk with you through the storm. I wonder if you know that there is a storm out there but we have peace in here. I wonder if you have found the peace that passes all understanding. Safety is not found in the absence of danger, but safety is found in the presence of God. You know, Jesus lived His whole life in the presence of God. When Jesus was rejected by his own, he had peace. When Jesus faced the scorn of the enemy, he still had peace. There was one moment, there was only one moment, I would say, that Jesus actually faced real danger. And as he looked upon that moment, he sweat blood. And he asked, if there's any way possible, take this cup from me. And in that moment, when Jesus actually faced danger, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time, Jesus faced a real danger. For the first time, Jesus was not safe. He was, in this moment, separated from that delightful presence of the Father, removed from Him, bearing the wrath of God. And in that moment, Jesus died. Listen, Jesus gave up His safety so that we might have safety. Jesus knew what it was like to be forsaken by the Father, to have real danger so that we might never be forsaken by the Father, so that we might always have safety. If he stayed in the grave, 
we would still be in danger. If Jesus stayed in the grave, we would have no safety. We would have no assurance. But the grave couldn't hold him. The grave spit him up. And in doing so, Jesus swallows up all danger for us. He's defeated death. He's defeated everything that man can throw at us. He has defeated our enemy. And we have nothing to fear. Jesus went into the abyss of danger so that we might remain in the safety of God's presence. Listen, if Jesus actually is the Alpha and the Omega, if He is the beginning and the end, then everything that happens in between A and Z, beginning and end, everything that happens in between is going to be okay. Everything that you and I face in our life, every bit of rejection, every bit of misunderstanding, every bit of misjudgment, all of it is going to be okay because we are in Christ and Christ is the beginning and the end. It's already written. And he says your story has a good ending. Is there anyone here who can say, I've got no fear in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. God, do not keep me from trouble, but stay with me through the trouble. As I am walking in the fear of God, as I am walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Father, we thank you that we have this peace that passes understanding as we walk fearing you, not man. As we walk comforted by our friend, your helper, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Help us to face the rejection, the persecution, the challenges in this life and remain in peace And as a result of us walking in the fear of You and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, God, build us up as a church like You did in Jerusalem. That's our prayer. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.